So today what we're going to do is, last week we began a brand new series. Two weeks ago we finished our series looking at the life of Moses in the Old Testament, um, mainly in the book of Exodus. And uh, last week we started a series where we decided, we only, we, during that series we only got to do one sermon on the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And this is such a, it's one of the most important uh, religious texts there, there has ever been in history. And so we felt like we wanted to do it a little more justice by spending some time on it. And so what we're doing is, um, for this summer, we're going to camp out and do a series looking at the Ten Commandments. And last week, we kicked it off, and Mark did an intro, and we talked about how um, these aren't just rules, aren't just do's and don'ts, but really what they are is, um, from God to us, an invita- it's an invitation to flourish, to live the good life. That's what these... Ten Commandments are really all about. And so today we're actually going to get into the first of these Ten Commandments. You can see the passage we're going to look at printed there in your bulletin, Exodus chapter 20. And uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. And so let me read this for us, and then I'll pray, and we can dive in and look at it together. So hear now God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for this morning. Um, We thank you for this passage and this time to gather and be together uh, as your people. Uh, Lord, this morning we think about and want to lift up our uh, youth team who's in Greece right now on a mission trip. Um, We pray that you'd be with them, you'd strengthen them, you'd give them energy, um, good attitudes, servant hearts. Lord, we pray uh, for their safety. We pray that you would use them in a powerful way, that they would experience uh, the beauty and power of the gospel in a fresh way. Um, Lord, we also think today about um, our dads on this day as we, when we celebrate um, our fathers as a culture Uh, Lord, thank you for the ways that our dads uh, have reflected you to us. And Lord, even thank you for the ways our dads have failed and have um, shown us we need a perfect father. And we thank you that that's who you are. And so um, would you be with us today as we think about our dads? And I pray now that as we come to this passage, you'd give us your Holy Spirit and would guide us into all of what's true about you and about us and how much you love us, that we may be changed from one degree of glory to another. We ask Jesus in your name. Amen. Well, I always have, and I still do love a good top five list. Uh, it's something I, my friends and I used to sit around and do growing up, something we love to do as a culture, whether it's sports, music, movies, you name it, it's fun to discuss and debate, to hear what people think and how they'd rank different things. But a top five list you may not have done before or thought about before is a top five list of the most used words in the English language. So I was looking at this this week, particularly the top five rankings based on two groups who have done this analysis, the Oxford English Corpus and the Corpus of Contemporary American English. Now, not surprisingly, looking at these lists, Coming in at number one in both rankings is the word the, right? An article, a word we use all the time. 
Second place is also consensus between these two groups for the verb be, to be. Another one we use all the time. But then at number three is where it gets a little bit debated because what's three for one group is number five for the other, but it's another heavy hitter, the word and. And I want to think about that word and. It's a great word. It's a coordinating conjunction. What that means is we use it to connect things that have an additive relationship. So for example, in the summer, I like to go to the pool or the beach and read a book. Or after church today, I'm going to eat lunch and take a nap. It's a great word, and. Except when you're talking about loyalty. Except when you're talking about what you're devoted to, because then and becomes a problematic word. And so think about it with something like your sports teams. I root for the Panthers and the Falcons. Right? And even if it's not rivals, the Panthers and the Cowboys. Or for college, of course, you wouldn't do UNC and Duke. But even if you did something like UNC and Clemson, it's just wrong. Right? And I know some of, there are some of you guys out there that do that kind of thing. But just for the record, it's not right. <laughs> what about your job? And I'm not talking about a situation where you've got to work multiple jobs to keep things going, but I'm talking about when you're a full-time job in a competitive space, it's not all right to say I'm loyal to my company and a major competitor. And the more serious the loyalty, the more problematic it is if you're dating or even more if you're married and is not an okay word to use, right? I'm dating or I'm married to this person and like, uh (laughs) uh-oh, In situations of loyalty and devotion, and is not a good word. It doesn't bring flourishing into our lives. What it brings is fragmentation. And now this is true most of all in our relationship with God. When it comes to our relationship with God, and is a deadly word. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way in his book on the Ten Commandments. He says, the fault with God's people has always been that little and. The Lord is fine, but we want the Lord and Baal, the Lord and Asherah, the Lord and money, the Lord and social respectability. We're quite happy to have God in our lives just so long as he fills only a part of our lives. We all want a trivial pursuit God, a manageable deity to round out our lives and fill in one piece of the pie, but he has no interest in being one important person among many. God cannot be worshiped rightly if he is worshiped alongside any other. And this is what God is after in the first of the Ten Commandments. As Mark talked about last week, and as I just said, God gives us these commandments because he wants us to flourish. He doesn't want us to be fragmented. He set us free to flourish, and he knows this is where it starts, removing the ands from our spiritual vocabulary, devoting ourselves to God and only God. And this morning in our time together, we're going to explore this idea. What would it look like for you and I to do this and begin to flourish as God intends for us to do in our life with him? And we're going to explore this in three movements. Number one, why we should remove the ands. Number two, what gets in the way. And then third, who can bring us back. So first, why should we remove the ands? Why should we remove the ands? Because this is a very radical commandment, both for us and for the original recipients. 
See, because you read this first commandment and you think, all right, here's what God's saying. I want you to worship me or I want you to worship me most. No other gods before me. I wanna be first place. I wanna be at the top of the list of the things you worship. And no doubt he is saying those things, but he's also saying a lot more than that. What God is saying here is not just worship me and worship me the most. What he's saying is worship me alone. Eugene Peterson and his translation of the first commandment translates it this way as God saying, no other gods, only me. No other gods, only me. And that, that's so radical. Exclusive devotion, undivided allegiance, loyalty. That's what God's commanding. And this was radical for the people of Israel to receive this. It wasn't a new idea for them. Their history as a people was always about worshiping one God. But remember, they're 50 days out from Egypt at this point. And if you think about it in, in our terms today, that's like April 29th. So that's not that long ago. And they lived and worked as slaves in Egypt for a long time. And the Egyptians did not worship one God. They worshiped many. Like the other ancient Near Eastern cultures of their day, they had all kinds of gods they worshiped. They had fertility gods. They had gods of their livestock, their health. And this was the air the people of Israel breathed. It was the world they lived in. And of course, like things in the culture tend to do, this seeped into them, this God and. And so for God to begin here was stunning. Now that I've set you free, here's the first and most important thing you need to do if you want to live and flourish. You've got to get rid of all that. It was a shock to their system just like it is for us. Whoa, you're serious about this following you thing. This isn't casual, it's not a hobby, it's not a side hustle, it, it's, it's for real. So back to our question, why? Why should the people of Israel, why should we today do something like this? Why should we obey a command so radical to get rid of everything else we devote ourselves to and devote ourselves to God alone? Well, God gives us a very simple answer in the two verses that come right before this first commandment and therefore all that follow. And he tells us we do this because he is the one true God. Look at what he says at the beginning, verse one, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And if you were here back in our Moses series when we preached our sermon on the 10 plagues God brought on Egypt, you'll remember the purpose of the plagues was to show Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and all the people of Israel who the real God truly is. Because God directed each one of these plagues at a so-called God of the Egyptians. When he turns the Nile to blood, God was going after the God Osiris whose bloodstream was thought to be the Nile. And the second plagues with the frogs, he was going after, he was showing his greatness over the, god, the frog goddess Heket. In the ninth plague, bringing darkness all over the land, he was showing who's truly in charge of the sun. It's him, it's not the sun god, Ra. And so here God is calling his people to remember who he is. To remember that he's the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt. He's calling them to remember what they just witnessed. He's calling them into reality, you are to have no other gods before me because there aren't any, because everything else is a counterfeit. 
I've shared this story before, but when I was a freshman in high school, I was at the peak of my love for shoes and particularly Jordans. And I had the Jordans from each year memorized. I had the pictures going back to 1985, um, even before I was born, cut out and, and taped on my wall, I mean, on my door. But they were hard to get and they were expensive. And so I was pumped when one of my teammates told me about this website you could go to where you could get any of the models for a much cheaper price. And this was kind of early internet shopping, so I wasn't nearly as skeptical as I would be now if somebody came and told me about this. Plus, I was 15. But I went and told all my friends. I was so excited about it. And we went to this website, and we ordered some Jordans. But then we got them. And they sort of resembled Jordans, but they weren't Jordans. The Jumpman logo was off. He, he just looked differently if you compared him to the real thing. They didn't look right. They weren't well made. They fer- fell apart quickly. They were counterfeits. They were knockoffs. They weren't the real thing. This is what God is telling the people of Israel and us. I'm the only real thing. Everything else is a counterfeit. Everything else is a knockoff. Everything else will fall apart on you. J.I. Packer says, your God is what you love, seek, worship, serve, and allow to control you. Tim Keller says, it's whatever you look to in your heart and say, if I have that, then I'll be okay. If I, have, if I just have that thing, then, then I'll have the, the value and the purpose I've been looking for. I'll have the security. I'll have the significance I've always wanted. And for them, it was these other Egyptian gods, those were their ands. For us, it's not these things. It's not legit other gods. But what is it? It's money, it's power, it's success, it's control, it's sex, it's comfort, it's family, it's politics, it's sports, it's community. It can be anything. And whatever it is in this first commandment, God is saying you need to strip all that away from your life because it's a terrible God. It's not a real one. There's only one true God that can handle your worship, that can stand up under the weight of being God in your life, and that's me. And that's, that's why you need to do this. But what gets in the way? What gets in the way of you and me believing this and actually doing the hard work of identifying these things and stripping them away from our lives? Well, the answer is our sinful hearts. John Calvin, the great Protestant reformer of the 16th century, once said our hearts are like factories that perpetually create idols, false gods, the ands we look to and worship. And now our, our, our hearts aren't all bad. This isn't all they do, but because of the sin condition you and me all have, this is what our hearts do. It's the natural direction they go apart from God's intervention. And if you read the Old Testament, even after God gave his people this foundational command not to do it, you see this is so much of the story. The people of God doing this over and over and over, constantly falling into the trap of idolatry, God and. You see it just when years later, Joshua, Moses' successor, has to tell the people when they renew the covenant this in Joshua 24, 14, He tells them, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Look at this, put away the gods that your father served 
beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Generations later, you see it when the prophet Elijah says to them, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But it's not just literal gods. It's not just literal idols. Saul, the first king of Israel, his thing was being liked, being approved of and loved by the people. That's what he served along with God. He was great until David showed up and people were more drawn to him. Then he couldn't handle it. He got so jealous and he spent the rest of his life anxiously trying to find him and to destroy him. And he was miserable. And Solomon, David's son, the king, he got off to a great start serving God. He was full of wisdom, but his and became his romantic relationships. First Kings 11 tells us this is ultimately what led his heart to turn away from God. For Jonah, the prophet, it was his nation, the nation of Israel. He was a prophet of God, but this is what he was also devoted to. It was his and, the prosperity and success of his country. That's why when God called him to go preach the gospel to the Ninevites, a national enemy of Israel, he ran away or at least tried to. And it's why when God eventually did make him go and preach and they repented, he, he pouted about it. He was angry. And you get to the New Testament and there are the Pharisees. Yes, they serve God. They know the scriptures backwards and forwards, all the laws, what to do, how to behave. But their end was their power and position as the elites of society, as those who were a cut above those who were around them. And that's why Jesus drove them crazy because he was always dealing with people that were at the very bottom of society. Moving outside of the Bible into, the pop, into pop culture, I took May to see The Little Mermaid this week. And so I've got it on my brain. And for Ariel, it's obviously wanting to be a human, right? That's why she can't be content living under the sea as a mermaid. She says, up where they walk, up where they run, up where they stay all day in the sun, wandering free, wish I could be part of your world. More seriously for me personally, there are a lot I could name, but the two that consistently show up the most for me are what I would call two deadly seas. And if you know me well, you, this will not surprise you at all, but the, the two seas of competence and control. Competence, having to be good at what I do, having to be competent. What this means is practically I, I won't do things often I'm not good at, or I'm, I'm hesitant to try things. I'm not sure if I'll be good at them or not. I'll, I'll sometimes avoid people that I know are better than me at something or situations where that might be exposed and I might have to, to actually deal with it. And then control, needing a sense of order, plan, a sense that everything is working out as I anticipated. And this one showed up for me in a big way this past fall. I already knew this was, was a, something for me, but we ended up moving when we didn't expect to. I didn't expect us to at the end of the summer from a neighborhood I thought we were going to live in for a long time. We were talking internally about changes in my role here at Hope, but nothing was determined and we didn't have a clear timeline and plan to roll it out. And so I felt like I was in limbo and it was a different plan than we'd always thought, which was for us to plant a church from Hope. Not to mention, we just found out Sarah was pregnant with Sophia and, and we had four months worth of renovations to do in the house we just moved into. And they're all like things I was excited about and I was super thankful for but it was so different than what I expected. It all happened so fast. Like I almost fell apart and I had no idea what was going on in the moment, but with a little space, I realized, gosh, I felt so out of control 
and, and I need that. Like that's a huge, that's a huge idol for me. And I've been wrestling because when I've got these two things, when I feel competent, when I feel like I'm in control along with God, as ands in my relationship with him, I'm great, right? I'm like, God is good all the time. But when I don't, like I experienced in the fall, I really struggle. And not that struggling automatically means you're not trusting in God, but I, I see there's something deeper going on here. These are, these are things I look to and I need as little gods in my life. And it can be so many things. What is it for you? What are some of the specific things you look to? The idols, the ands in your relationship with God, where does your heart go? What do you have to have in addition to God to be okay? We've all got them. And to learn to obey this first commandment, we've got to learn to identify them, to say, here's what it is for me. Here's what gets in the way. And so finally, what do we need? Who can bring us back? Who can bring us back? Well, we need someone who can bring us back first by showing us what this looks like. Someone who can show us what it looks like to obey, to keep this commandment. And as Mark said last week, there's only one person who can do that. Only one person who can show us what it looks like to keep all these commandments, including this one. When Jesus was asked by a Bible scholar in Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment? He answered him by referencing the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. And here's what he said in Matthew 22, verse 37. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And that's him expounding on and summarizing the first four of the Ten Commandments. As we'll see, the first four are directly are directed vertically to God. And that's what he says they're essentially all about. And especially this first one. It's not just about removing the ands from your relationship with God so it's him alone. It's about loving him. It's about loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with everything you've got. It's about loving him, treasuring him above everything else. And that's how Jesus lived every second of his earthly life. That's how he's lived every second of his life from eternity. And there's no better place, I think you can go to see this than in his temptations. When led by the Holy Spirit, Jesus went out into the desert to be tempted by Satan because this is, this is directly what Satan went after with him. First, he tempted, tempted him, Jesus, I know you're hungry. You haven't eaten anything in 40 days and I know you can do it. It would be so easy for you. Just turn these stones to bread. But Jesus said, no, he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the second time he tempted him, Jesus, look at all the kingdoms of the world. You can have it all right now. That easy, just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And lastly, Satan took him to the top of the temple and said, throw yourself down from here. The angels will save you. It'll be amazing. Everybody will go crazy. They'll all love you. Once again, Jesus said, no, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. They're all different temptations, but theologians point out, you can see the seed of every temptation 
you and I ever face in these three here. And at the root, what are they all about? Jesus, are you truly devoted to God? Are you, are you truly loyal to him and to him alone? And to this, Jesus emphatically says, yes. He shows us what it looks like perfectly to have no other gods before us. It means to love him with everything we have, to seek him, to worship him, to serve him, to allow him to control us, for him to be the thing that we, we have to have to be okay. He shows us exactly what it looks like to obey this command. But that's not all Jesus does. And in fact, his obedience to this command is part of something even bigger and more important he's doing. See, Jesus doesn't only show us what it looks like to obey this command. He saves us from all the ways we don't. Because when Jesus Christ kept this commandment, for his entire life, he was doing it for us. And when he went to the cross at the end of his earthly life, he was condemned and punished for us. He was punished like he didn't love God with all his heart, like he didn't trust him, like he did put other gods before him. He took our place. He obeyed in our place. He was condemned in our place. And he was so that when we trust in what he's done for us, we receive his perfect record of obedience and all of our sins are wiped away so that when God looks at you in light of this first commandment, when you're in Christ, it's not your failures he sees. It's not, not all the other ands you have in your life, but what he sees is the perfection of Jesus. And that's what brings you back. That's what drives you to keep this command counterintuitively. It's not more willpower and grinding to make it happen, though it is hard work to do this, to identify your idols and to, to strip them away. But the main thing is seeing Jesus has kept this for me. It's beholding him. It's seeing that this God who commands me to be so devoted to him is this devoted to me. It's looking at Jesus and seeing this is how much he loves me. This is how much he cares about me. This is how much he wants me to flourish. And if this is his heart for me, how can I possibly devote myself to anything else? Why would I not devote myself wholly to him? This is the pathway. This is how competence and control can lose some of their grip in my life. The more I see Jesus and what he's done for me, how good he is and how much my father loves me, the less I, I need to be competent. Yeah, I can still use my gifts where I have them, but it's not this compulsive need. I can just be who I am and I can be even willing to move into spaces where I don't feel competent and be okay. And for control, I can still try to make plans and like for things to go that way. And I can even struggle when they don't, but I can learn to rest. I can learn to trust in God to control me. And whatever it is for you, you can do that too. As you and I see God's love for us in the person of Jesus and we receive it, we will grow in our love for him. And as we grow in our love for him and only him, all the other ands in our, life, our lives will start to fall away. And do you know what will happen? We'll begin to flourish. And that's the invitation 
of the Ten Commandments, and it begins here with this first and foundational one, to have no other gods before him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for these commandments, the way they expose our hearts and the way they point us to Jesus and your great love for us in him. And we ask by the power of your spirit that you would uh, use this time this morning um, to help us grow in keeping this. As we see how devoted you are to us, how loyal, how committed you are to us, uh, would you change our hearts? Would you make the things that we all in our different ways and personalities and with our different stories are drawn to cling to, would you, would you help all these things that we feel like we have to have um, lose some of their weight so that we uh, may devote, devote ourselves to you alone? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.